I'm Tracy McCauley. I'm Nathan Wayne. And I'm Liz Wong. We are cardiology pharmacists, educators, and self-declared literature crusaders. And welcome to Cardioscripts, a cardiology podcast brought to you in collaboration with the ACCP Cardiology Practice and Research Network. And thank you for joining us on this Cardioscripts Classics episode, where we take a step back in time and explore literature that got us to where we are today. So this is now part two of our Hypertension Classics episode. And if you haven't already listened to it, you might want to stop and go back and listen to part one. Uh, Liz and I left off talking about the evidentiary review that is JNC8. And she sort of had teased at the fact that this, you know, maybe was fairly quickly outdated by the publication of the SPRINT trial and more evidence that supports the findings she was discussing related to hypertension management specifically in our elderly patients. Tell us about SPRINT because I feel like it was a game changer for a lot of us, but is not without controversy. You may be sensing a theme. There's a lot of controversy with uh, a lot of different hypertension trials. But yes, the pendulum swung very quickly within a year. So SPRINT was this open label randomized control trial. And so they randomized patients to the intensive blood pressure group of less than 120 millimeters of mercury versus what they classified as standard, less than 140 millimeters of mercury. I think it's important to note for the SPRINT trial that they excluded patients who had a history of stroke or diabetes. And their primary outcome was a composite of myocardial infarction, acute coronary syndrome, stroke, acute decompensated heart failure, and cardiovascular death. And so when we're thinking about intensive versus standard, one of the populations we really want to consider are our older patients, because there is some concern with reducing blood pressure too much in that population. About 30% of patients included in the SPRINT trial were 75 years or older. The overall mean age of patients included within the trial was about 68 years. 36% were female, 58% were non-Hispanic white, and 30% of patients were non-Hispanic black. And the baseline blood pressure in this trial was 140 over 78 millimeters of mercury. In terms of the mean systolic blood pressure, they follow these patients over a little over three years, 3.26 years. The mean blood pressure in the intensive group was 121.5 millimeters of mercury versus 134.6 millimeters of mercury for those who are in the standard blood pressure control group. And patients were on a mean of 2.8 blood pressure meds versus 1.8 blood pressure agents in those who are on the intensive um, versus the standard group. And if you dive into the supplementary appendix, about 56.1% of patients who are in the intensive arm were either on three agents or four or more agents. And about a quarter, 24.1% of patients in the standard arm were on three agents or four or more agents. And I think that's important to highlight just in terms of how many agents these patients uh, need to be on just in, in general to get to less than 120 or less than 140 millimeters of mercury. So usually it's more than one. Um, in terms of the primary outcome, they found a statistically significant difference between the group. It occurred less frequently in patients who were on the intensive treatment arm. And the difference was really driven by heart failure and cardiovascular death. But on, on the flip side, and something important to note with the sprint trial is that there were more adverse effects in patients randomized to the intensive arm. So more hypotension, electrolyte abnormalities, um, and AKI, though I will say they noted there were no differences in serious adverse events between the two groups, but something for us to keep in mind in terms of, of management. And so there is a lot of controversy 
uh, about Sprint. It's important to note who was excluded. That's key. Some other questions that have come up are in terms of like how they took the patient's blood pressure. Um, can that be replicated in the real world setting? There was question on why there was no statistical benefit seen with stroke or myocardial infarction. So we've talked about um, some of the early trials. We looked at stroke and they, they didn't see that benefit when they looked at the intensive arm um, in the sprint trial. And yeah, you know, Liz, I've always wondered with this trial, if there is a point where the stroke benefit is there and then going lower doesn't continue to lower that risk, which is what I think this trial was trying to help us understand a little bit. It definitely doesn't answer that question definitively. However, you hear a lot of folks get nervous about adding that fourth, that fifth agent because of hypertension's notorious J-point curve and where you can go too low and start to actually adversely affect the patient. But when you're talking about those serious adverse effects, you mentioned ones that were statistically significantly different. I think one of the more common things I hear my doctors concerned about is syncope and fall risk, which are not different in this trial when you look at the two groups. And I think it's a good chance for us just to maybe wrap up the entire um, subgroup or the entire um, subpopulation of elderly patients with hypertension and just discuss more about this because our guidelines definitely are now different even from the European guidelines. And I think the definitions used in this trial and, you know, I sort of have become maybe the older I get, I think about this more, but that age is really truly just a number and that we might not see differences in fall and injury and things with blood pressure lowering when we're looking at a healthy elderly patient population, but more concerns might be when we're addressing a more frail elderly patient population. And I think so that's the, that's the key with the sprint trial too. So these patients that were included, I don't think they were what we would classify our frail elderly patients who were a little bit more concerned about maybe being more sensitive or just having just poor out adverse effects or poor outcomes associated with more aggressive hypertension management and our frail elderly they're they're really a different, um, almost like a, I think of them almost in my head as like a different um, population when I'm managing them for hypertension. So I'll refer to the European guidelines, um, cause they kind of delve a little bit more into this. So they, they talk about how for elderly patients, that does not mean we do not address their hypertension. Um, it's something that we need to be managing, but maybe we're a little bit less aggressive that is reflected in their blood pressure recommendations. So they recommend to target a systolic of, and they give a range 130 to 139. So not less than 140, but somewhere between 130 to 139. And then they also state that a blood pressure of less than 130 should be avoided. I think for, for me personally, it's, it's patient to patient. You can have a 75 year old patient who's really healthy. I've had several that are, are probably more in shape than I am myself. Um, and then some that are, you know, older, more frail. So maybe we're a little less aggressive upfront therapy or management of these patients. I think something else we need to keep in mind too, is de-escalation as well. So sometimes I have patients who come in on four or five blood pressure medications, and we're talking about just straight, um, hypertension management. So not additionally like HEFREF or um, some other comorbidities where they would have compelling indications to, to be started on, on different medications. But from a hypertension standpoint, sometimes there does need to be discussion about de-escalating. I don't think we have great data in terms of 
specifics and when we should deescalate. I think it's very patient specific, but sometimes it's something I think we need to, to keep in mind. We add all of these agents on, rightfully so, um, but there comes a point in time where maybe we can pull one or two off. Maybe they're not really going to get that long-term benefit um, from a hypertension perspective by being on, the, on all of those medications. Um, so I think that's something that's important for us as a pharmacist or just in general management to, to continually assess in the, the elderly population. You mentioned earlier that I think hypertension is just really one of those areas where we individualize. So the blood pressure goals, the age, these maybe aren't as simply defined by numbers, that these are things you have to set looking at the individual, their goals of therapy, their current state, their wellness overall, their thoughts on taking medicines and really work out an individualized plan, which just makes it the perfect area for pharmacists to engage with the care team in helping with. Another patient population that you and I have hinted at a lot, and I know you have a lot of experience managing Black patients in the Houston area and at the VA as well. And so I'd just love to talk through how we reach and how we manage blood pressure in a patient population that continues to exhibit rates of cardiovascular adverse events that are much harder than um, white patients and how we can take our understanding of hypertension and help eliminate some of these care disparities that exist in our black patients. This patient population, when you go through and look at the data, um, they have poor outcomes, as I mentioned earlier, associated with hypertension. Um, They are less likely to reach, based on the data that we have, Uh, less likely to reach blood pressure goals that are set for them, Um, lower likelihood of follow-up as well. And there's also some data to indicate that providers in general maybe just aren't as aggressive as they could be in terms of initiating agents to help this patient population get to their goal. There are uh, a couple of trials that I uh, like to refer to. There's the Barber 1 trial and what I call, I don't know if it's officially been deemed the Barber 2 trial, Um, But I'll I'll take a minute to dive into the Barber 2 trial because I think it's an interesting study. And I think it kind of nicely outlines as well how we can approach pharmacologic management for this patient population. So the Barber 2 trial came out in the New New England Journal of Medicine in, in 2018. And this was building off of a previous trial that came out in 2011. That 2011 trial was conducted out in Dallas, but essentially they partnered with Barber's in barbershops across that Dallas area to see if there was any difference with regards to blood pressure changes. And so they kind of built upon that partnering with black barbershops, but they conducted the trial a little bit differently. And so they randomized patients to either the pharmacist group is what we'll call it, or the barbershop group. And so across the board, the barbers at the barbershops were trained in terms of providing like pamphlets and encouraging patients. They were specifically targeting black male patrons to follow up with their primary care physician. So essentially that group, they were managed by primary care. Um, The other group was managed by PharmDs. Um, So these were pharmacists who had received a lot of different training in terms of medication management. They went out to the barbershops to take the patient's blood pressures. Um, They had iStat devices to get labs while they were out there at the barbershops. They had a collaborative practice agreement, so they were able to adjust patient's meds. So these were non-Hispanic Black men. They had to be between 35 to 79 years and have systolic blood pressures of 140 or greater. 
all patients were started in the pharmacist group on two drugs up front. And I'll note that these two agents were amlodipine plus an ACER and ARB. So that kind of ties back into the accomplished trial. Um, and then they would add indapamide, actually. So another thiazide diuretic. Where do we see indapamide in other hypertension management? Because I think people, if they're like me, they have never recommended indapamide, but it really has had an important role in hypertension trials over the years. This is just another example. Yeah. So there's some other data to back up the use of indapamide. I'll say that I have never initiated a patient on it, but it exists and it's there. So trials such as the HIVET trial, I just know that I've seen places where it's listed, it can lower blood pressure as much as, you know, 54% more than hydrochlorothiazide. And I think that's also like a chlorothaladone thing and its properties, as far as metabolic are more similar to chlorothaladone than they are to HCTZ and its half-life is longer. So it sort of has those properties that I think are more similar to what we talked about with chlorothaladone and is a real option. I think we all know the reason HCTZ is used the most is because it was generic first and it was used in combination with so many other drugs, you know, when combo therapy was being developed. So the blood pressure goal for these patients was less than 130 over 80 millimeters of mercury. So I'll point out that this trial came out after sprint. Um, I don't believe the 2017 AACCAHA guidelines had been out while this trial was conducted, but that was the, the blood pressure goal. So a little bit more aggressive than some of the other trials that we've talked about, though not quite as aggressive as what we talked about with the SPRINT trial. In terms of what they found, the mean systolic blood pressure for these patients who are in the pharmacist group dropped by 27 millimeters of mercury, 27 versus nine millimeters of mercury for those who are in the barber group, who we can think of more as being managed by the primary care physician. So that's a difference in like 21, 22 millimeters of mercury. And so I think when we're thinking about this difference in blood pressure that they found, so one, it is huge. Um, but two, I think for us as pharmacists, we can really dive into what medications they use to manage these patients. I also think it's important to note that these patients were closely followed. It was um, also the pharmacist going out into the community. After six months, antihypertension treatment increased from 55% to 100% in the intervention arm versus 53% to 63% in the control group. And so again, I point that out because I the data has shown that in general, we just aren't as aggressive or we're more hesitant to initiate medications. Um, we're really in this patient population a lot of times, more often than not, really, we need to initiate follow-up and continue to be aggressive in terms of starting additional agents to help patients reach their blood pressure goal. Um, and this, this protocol from this trial, I really like to show students. So I think as a, another good point to all those out there who are educators, I think, um, our pharmacy students are not all necessarily likely to become cardiovascular pharmacy specialists like we are. And I think this is a very good example of a trial where pharmacists had an impact on patients in their community with the disease that 
has a lot of implications for ongoing cardiovascular events and really could be the kind of protocol that you worked with boards of pharmacies to allow community pharmacists to implement these things for patients across their community. And so I think a a motivated community pharmacist, ambulatory pharmacist, and not just cardiovascular pharmacy specialists really benefit from understanding this trial and the implications that it could have on patients, especially this patient population that we've outlined, the, the heavy care disparity that I think pharmacists should be part of overcoming. Something else I want to highlight is just the number of medications that these patients were on. So mean of 2.6 in those in the intervention group versus 1.4 for those who are in the um, the Barber group. And I think that's important to note because to reach that blood pressure goal of less than 130 over 80, patients needed two to three medications. I think that's a theme that we've seen just across hypertension studies. Patients are going to need two, three, maybe more medications to get to the blood pressure goal. Of course, it has to be individualized. Definitely. There's always that caveat, but I think this is something important to highlight. I'll also note that almost 99% of patients in the pharmacist group were on an ACE or an ARP, uh, 94% on a calcium channel blocker, 46% on a diuretic, and about 10%, 10 to 11% on an aldosterone antagonist. So these patients were on really solid, good medications. We saw like a great blood pressure reduction. I, I love this trial. I think the medications they're on, that's huge. Um, I think it shows that we, we need to get these patients on at least two agents up front. I think the other thing that, that we need to really start thinking about, and we're seeing more trials looking at this and, and other disease states too, is us going out to the community. And then the follow-up is key, like across the board, follow-up with hypertension is important. We started an agent. Did we actually do anything by starting that agent or, or do we need to start another? You know, Liz, one of, we've gone over now these, all the main drug therapies that we use in hypertension. We've talked about how to add things or when we need to start with combination therapy. We've covered elderly patients and black patients, which are two of the the more important um, patient populations to cover when we're talking about this. There are also though, a lot of like nuanced things and opinions about, you know, different concepts around hypertension that I just like to get sort of your thoughts on why we're either covering them or why we're maybe still holding out some um, room for judgment as more information becomes available. But just to mention a few, we have ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. We have uh, the idea of chronotherapy and, you know, dippers versus non-dippers and moving things to bedtime. So where are we at with a lot of these other areas around the management of hypertension? Yeah, that is a little bit to unpack. I'll start with ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, and there's also home blood pressure monitoring as well. So ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, you're essentially monitoring the patient's blood pressure intermittently over 24 hours. Home blood pressure monitoring is where the patient is taking their own blood pressure at home. And the the 2017 ACCAHA guidelines have commented like on both of these approaches. I'll say that if you get one or even two blood pressures during a patient visit, there is some risk there that, you know, that one time you take the patient's blood pressure, it's high, they have white coat hypertension, they're really nervous. And so there's there's some risk there. I think there is some, some good data looking at both of these um, approaches. It's nice because it gives you more information in terms of how to go about managing these patients' blood pressure. But I think there's even more to come as we continue to implement this just in, in daily practice. 
The benefit of it is that you're able to see if you're doing ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, what a patient's blood pressure is running over 24 hours. So during the day, that's great, but also during night. And that kind of feeds into the other part of your question, talking about dippers versus non-dippers. So dippers, their definition is a blood pressure decrease of greater than 10% of the systolic and diastolic blood pressure at night compared to the daytime blood pressures. And then we have non-dippers who have a less than 10% fall in the systolic and diastolic blood pressure. And so what they found that non-dippers tend to have poor cardiovascular outcomes compared to, to our dippers. And so that's something to keep in mind. In terms of how to manage dippers versus non-dippers, to date or to my knowledge, I don't think we have specific recommendations or there's a difference in terms of how we manage these patients. But I think it's something important to note, and I think it's something we, we may see more data coming out on in terms of our approach to pharmacologic management between those two groups. The other approach to managing hypertension that is also being talked about is chronotherapy. So when do we... When should patients, when is the ideal time for patients to take their blood pressure medications? Um, a lot of patients will take their blood pressure medications first thing when they wake up in the morning. There is question though, is there more benefit in terms of taking blood pressure medications at night? Um, before you go to bed, you have that catecholamine surge when you first wake up, are we getting maybe some better coverage with those hypertension medications? And the answer is, I don't think we have a great answer. In 2019, there was the Hygieia trial that came out. We could probably do an entire episode on this as well, because there's quite a bit of controversy with that. Not, not clear in terms of randomization. And there's a, a couple other questions with that trial as well. I would say from a literature standpoint, I hope that there's more to come. Um, and it'd be great, you know, if we find benefit with chronotherapy, you know, wonderful. It's an easy switch going from day to night. Overall, like all of our classic episodes, I feel like I'm left with awe on how much you know about this topic. So thank you for being involved in switching your hat for this episode of Cardio Scripts. But also, um, I feel like we end up with just as many questions and so much more interest in diving into the literature because of our skimming the surface of this huge topic. Thanks for tuning in to CardioScripts. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioScripts and check out our website at CardioScripts.com. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions are those of the individuals on today's episode. The ACCP Cardiology PRN is not responsible for the presented content or its accuracy. So, observant fans of CardioScript, you may have noticed that our intro changed slightly since the last episode. I want to be one of the first to very publicly congratulate Vincent and Liz Wang. So, Elizabeth, we are so excited for you, and we will look forward to, from now on, referring to you as Dr. Wang. So, we'll send you out with this episode where Dr. Liz Wang was our guest, with a little toast to the two of you, it is been said by Elizabeth Barrett Browning that love doesn't make the world go round. Love is what makes the ride worthwhile. Congratulations, you two.